It's Tuesday, May 12th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me, Jason Moser. Good to see you, my friend. Howdy. We've got some earnings. We have a surprising new player in the e-commerce space. Uh, we're going to start with the automotive industry, though, because a few data points coming out for the automakers, and um, and I don't think any of them are good, Jason. We've got the latest earnings results from Honda and Toyota, and both those stocks are down as a result. And we also got the consumer price index for April, and you go through it on a granular level, and one of the biggest moves that we saw in the CPI for April was car and truck rentals down yeah. 16.5%. Um, and and all of these combined are making me wonder where we're going as a country with the automotive industry. Where do you think we're going? I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, there's part of me that that you know we were talking about this before taping, and it does seem like as we get back to some sense of normal, whatever that is, and whenever it does happen, um, you know, how attractive is it going to be for people to take public transportation? I mean, in areas where public transportation is a great solution, um, it, it eventually it becomes such a great <laughs> solution that everybody uses, and it becomes it becomes less a, a user friendly experience, and and so. You have to wonder the willingness of consumers to put themselves in those types of crowded environments again, and, and how long that that trepidation may last. And, and if that does last, does that play out where people decide, well, they want to drive more, or is it something where we feel like, hey, maybe I don't need to worry about driving to work or taking public transportation to work because I can just, you know, telecommute or whatever. So, I mean, there are a few different ways you could see it playing out. I think when you think when you, when you look at it bigger picture. I feel like, you know, cars are not going to just be disrupted, right? I mean, cars are an integral part of our transportation system here, not only domestically but but globally. I mean, if you look at the results that Toyota uh, put out today, I mean, I think they said they said they expect their profits to plunge by around eighty percent. Uh, this year, as as essentially, you know, no one's out there buying cars right now for understandable reasons, um, and that you know they're gonna they're gonna sell fewer cars, and and I think that's a pretty safe assumption all the way around the board, uh, whether you're Toyota or Honda or Ford, and and what we're gonna see then at some point when when we get back to to normal, they're gonna be dangling every incentive out there to get people to come shop. And normally, those incentives come in the form of either you know cash back on the car or perhaps zero percent financing. Um, you know, I think back to 2015, I guess it was. Um, I bought a Ford Explorer, and even then, it it was zero percent financing. And so, it does feel like you know these automakers are going to have to rely more and more on selling cars, and maybe they're not going to necessarily have as much uh, exercise on on the financing side of things. But but there's no question it, it's going to be very interesting to see how this all plays out longer term. I mean, the car rentals numbers, you know that that I think is probably a bit more tethered to travel, and and of course you know not a lot of people are traveling either. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, any which way you cut it, it, it's obviously not a good time. And and when we get back to to brass tacks here, I mean, they're going to have to dangle a lot of incentives to get customers to come back through the door. Although. You know, on the flip side, you look at the price of gasoline. Mm -hmm. I, I I filled up my minivan the other day for thirty five dollars. Yeah, you know, that's, I know. That's, I mean, I did the same thing with my Explorer. I, I walk away spending like thirty five bucks, and I just I'm thinking, hey, this is the greatest thing ever. But you know what? I might put ten miles a day on that thing now at most. But do you think 
at some point, whether it's six months down the line, 12 months down the line, do you think people who are looking to buy a new or lightly used car are just going to be in heaven? Because it, it seems like they're going to have a lot of options. I, and, and one of the things I'm thinking about is the struggles that, uh, you know, we're hearing from companies like Hertz. And I don't know, it, it's easy for me to imagine a scenario where anyone who wants to buy a newer used car in, call it a year, they're going to have just a, a potpourri of options. Yeah, I, I think that's a safe assumption, and I think there's probably going to be some of that pent up demand that we always talk about when when we go through, um, you know, times of of, of you know fiscal tightening, right? When when we're pinching the purse string, so to speak. I mean, at some point or another, when when you kind of get out of that stage and you want to get back out and spend a little bit, and it's you know it's kind of an exciting time, and and so I could certainly see. Um, you know, a dynamic of, of pent up demand coming back out on that market, and and, and yeah, to your point, there, there's going to be a slew of options, no question about it. Um, it we but we got to get there first, and, and, and you know, unfortunately, it's just it's it's impossible to really figure the time the time frame at this point. Uh, but but yeah, I think eventually we do get back to that. I don't think this is something that impairs these automakers permanently. I mean. Making cars is hard work, and and I mean, I, you know, as as much um, as as much great stuff that Elon Musk and Tesla are doing. I mean, you you see the trials and tribulations of what he's going through. You just you recognize the fact that making cars is really hard work, and and so these companies have have got it down to a science. They do a really good job with it. And, and yeah, I don't think we're going to see a, a world where we're pivoting away from from automobiles in the near future. And and so yeah, I could see a point where a year or two down the road things bounce back. People are are feeling a little bit better about their jobs, a little bit. Better about their bank accounts, and they're going to have some really attractive options as far as as far as automobiles. People are going to have some options on vehicles, and the other thing out of the CPI report is men who are looking for a new suit. <laughs> Good yeah. news, because one of the biggest price moves we saw in the April CPI was men's suits. Mm-hmm. Just the the price of suits are falling for all of the obvious reasons, and. I don't remember the last time I bought a suit, but I don't know. I might, I might go get one because uh, I, I have to believe they're going to be on great sales this summer. Well, and the good news is, Chris, if you go to you know Joseph A. Bank, if you get one, you'll probably get about ten more free. Um, and I think that's never going to change. We we talked about this certainly before, and we saw where Men's Warehouse and Joseph A. Bank merged together um, to form tailored brands. Uh, and, and I mean, one look at their financials and their market cap, you, you can see clearly there is a problem. I mean, this is a fifty billion, a fifty million dollar company. Um, it, you know, it, 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 the stock price is, is now trading around a dollar. They've got just a load of debt on the balance sheet. I'm not sure how they're going to ever be able to really service it. And that's the combination of a lot of things, right? And, and I think our current day situation with everybody uh, telecommuting, working over Zoom and Microsoft Teams and what. Not, you don't need to wear suits for that. Um, and, and, and I think the workplace of, of this generation and, and going forward, you know, there's not the same priority placed on, on having those sartorial sensibilities, so to speak. So, I, I mean, I think, whereas cars, I can see certainly a world where, where they're, they're still very, very relevant. I, I don't necessarily see the same thing playing out for, for suits, so to speak. I mean, there's a time and a place, but that time and place, you remember, it used to be at work every day. 
it's just not that way anymore. And I don't know that that really, I don't know that that really changes. I think, I think we just keep on going in the other direction there. And, and so yet to see, to see that industry uh, lagging is not surprising at all. And I don't know there's a catalyst on the horizon that really kicks it back in the other direction anytime soon. Shares of Eventbrite down nearly 20% this morning. Uh, first quarter results for the event management company were about what you would expect in a world where live events have basically come to a screeching halt. Um, you know this company a lot better than I do. How bad was this for Eventbrite? Um, well, so I, I actually, I mean, it was bad, but it wasn't surprising, right? I mean, I think having followed this company and, and actually ha I own, I own some, some shares of this company as well. Um, it, you knew going into the quarter, it was going to be bad. I mean, if the market for this company, the market it serves has been completely shut down. I mean, there are no live events anywhere. And I mean, let's just put this into context. Restaurants have it better than Eventbrite at this point, because at least they can figure out other ways to serve customers, whether it's, uh, drive-through or curbside pickup or delivery. I mean, Eventbrite's business just essentially ground to a halt. And I mean, when you look at some of the numbers there, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, they obviously lost a ton of money in, in the quarter. Now, part of that loss is uh, reserves set aside for future refunds that they anticipate are coming. Um, but, but regardless, I mean, the questions I had going into this quarter really focused on two things and, and seeing if we could get any context from them as to when they think um, things will start improving in their market when they see that live events market kind of coming back online. And then the other question was just the financial state of the business and how they plan um, to, to weather the storm. Now, the first question, there's really no clarity there. And that's not their fault. I mean, we really just don't know. I mean, states are just starting to dip a toe back in the water to see if they can open up their economies and get back to to, to business. But that that's going to take some time even still. And, and we've talked about this two-way, this two-sided recovery. I mean, there's one thing to get the supply out there and open up your stores, but it, it's an entirely uh, it, it's an entirely different proposition to get the consumers out there, to get the demand out there. And, and so I think that's going to be something that they're going to have to deal with as well. But on the financial side, I mean, they they do have a balance sheet that, that has a healthy amount of cash on it to keep them uh, in business. They're cutting back all they're they're really cutting back any unnecessary expenses. And they also got a nice little infusion from Francisco Partners uh, for up to $225 million in term loans to help get them through the next couple of years if they need it, right? That that loan comes in a couple of tranches and they can get one and then if they have to if they have to exercise the other one, they can exercise the other one. Um, but you know, Eventbrite's a very interesting business. I mean, if you look at 2019, they served one million creators who sold 300 million free and paid tickets for approximately 4.7 million live events across 180 countries. I mean, this is a real business. It's a big business. And and it's kind of like it's kind of like Live Nation, just smaller and serving that smaller, sort of small to medium-sized business uh, demo. Um, but they are going to have to to really batten down the hatches and ride this thing out because there's just no other option. They they can make a little bit of that money back with virtual events, but that's not really their bread and butter. I mean, you know, people can just go to Instagram Live or Periscope or Zoom or whatever and, and do the same thing. So it, it's going to be a tricky time for them. But I, I think at least the question regarding the liquidity uh, for the business, their resources to be able to weather the storm, that question is answered. So I think that's that's certainly. Uh, a reason to at least be cautiously optimistic that things will eventually get better for them, but but who knows when? 
Let's move to Pepsi because Pepsi, I love this. Pepsi announced the launch of two new e-commerce sites so that Pepsi can sell their stuff directly to you. They announced the launch of snacks.com, which is just what you think it would be. The Frito-Lay <laughs> snacks that they have, uh, Doritos, Lay's potato chips, uh, and my personal favorite, Cheetos. Uh, and they also announced the launch of uh, pantryshop.com, where you can bundle in some of the other products that Pepsi makes, uh, oatmeal, Gatorade, that sort of thing. This, uh, this is a brilliant move. It I is, love this. It is, and I'm totally on board with Cheetos. I love them. Just, I, I'm curious, do you like the regular Cheetos or do you like the Cheetos Puffs? I like the regular. Or do you discriminate? You just you like the regular. I like I, the regular too. I like that crunch. Yeah. Um, every once in a while, I'll spice it up and get those flaming hot Cheetos. Not too bad. Pretty good. Um, I'm I'm with you here, man. I think this is a great example of just some forward thinking, a consumer centric move from what is a pretty basic and kind of boring traditional business, right? They're just selling drinks and food to people, but. Uh, you know, they're they're ultimately figuring out ways to meet their customers where they are, and you know, think about it when we talk about Pepsi and when we talk about Coca Cola. What's the one thing we always shine a light on with those two companies beyond just their brand recognition? It's really it's the distribution, right? These are distribution companies. It's this massive supply chain, and they have this ability to get product from point A to point B in in, in really quick 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 amounts of time and and you know for for the longest time i mean it's always been a focus on physical stores uh, incorporating a direct to consumer angle into this business seems like it would be relatively complementary to what they're doing already and if you look at pepsi as a business i mean they they generated around 68 billion dollars in sales over the last 12 months and and e-commerce is is it's just a smidge of that maybe 2 billion dollars of that is e-commerce related so I don't know that this is something that necessarily, you know, it takes over and becomes a material part of the business. But I tell you what it does do. It keeps their products on the top of consumers' minds. And it also it also gives them some data to work with. I wouldn't be surprised at all to see them take some of this data, work with it, and cater more to the individual as time goes on, right? I think that's the beauty of direct-to-consumer is getting that data regarding that specific consumer. Um, so, I mean, you know, the, these, these products scratch an itch for, for everyone out there. They got a great assortment of products that, that, that just, they have something for everyone. And I really like this move. If, if anything, it's kind of like restaurants. They're figuring a way, a way to innovate and to do things a little bit differently, um, making the best of a bad situation. And we've talked for a while now about retail, put aside consumer products, but we've talked for a long time about retail and how e-commerce is officially table stakes. Like if yeah. you don't have an e-commerce strategy, then what are you even doing as a retailer? <laughs> yeah. And I look at this move by Pepsi, and I have to believe that other non-retailers are looking at this and saying, "Okay, what's our version of this? Why wouldn't we do this?" You know, um, I was talking recently about Under Armour and how, you know the the money that Under Armour invested all those years ago, the hundreds of millions of dollars that Under Armour invested in. The connected fitness. Mm -hmm. Imagine you can go back in time and instead they invest that seven hundred million dollars in e-commerce and building out an UnderArmor.com robust e-commerce platform. I don't think they're in as bad a shape today as uh, as they are as a result of that. And so, I mean, that's you know that's athletic wear. This is consumer products. But I look when we're done with this, when we're done with this episode, 
I'm going to PantryShop.com, <laughs> and I am placing an order. I am well, signing up, and I am placing an order. I mean, it's really cool. Like, they've got it to where they've got these kits you can order. I mean, they, they've actually set it up so that you can actually go in and buy, like, kits that cater to the specific tastes of the individual like it, it it's just they, they've done such a good job in giving the consumer so many choices and in some cases just saying hey if, if, if you're kind of if it's information overload here just get this basket here it's got a little bit of this and a little bit of that and and i'm, I'm glad that you brought up that under armor example because i mean that's a great a great point there uh when we talk about management teams that they're able to reinvest capital in, in effective ways, right? Where they're able to invest their capital in, in effective ways. You know, at, at the time when Under Armour made those purchases, I mean, I, I think we tried to paint uh, a smile on our faces and say, oh yeah, that's just a smart move because it's just data and tech and it's just a, it's going to be a data-driven world. But in the back of our minds, we're kind of sitting there thinking, is that something they really needed to pay that much for? And fast forward to today, and we can look at that and say, just absolutely not. That was a bad investment. And I, I don't think Kevin Plank ever really fully admitted that it was a bad investment. So that's strike two. But you look at what Pepsi's doing here. This is just a simple, um, a simple addition, a simple complement to their business model already, and I think it does. You know, it ultimately goes back to that advantage that businesses like this have in distribution, right? For them to to, to you know fulfill these orders and get them out to to, to the individuals. You know, we have a tremendous infrastructure around this com- around this country that can help help make that happen. But but you know, they already have these massive supply chains and distribution networks in place, and this is just going to be one more way to leverage it. And I think it's a wonderful move. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.